a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 101 of the Say the Damn Score podcast, which is presented this week by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young professionals. Grow your career through engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at SholdMediaGroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D MediaGroup.com. And as you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Here in Minnesota, for me personally, it's been a great week. My last football game on the streaming platform I've created, which is on lnpanthers.live if anybody wants to check it out. It's a partnership that I have with Lakeville North High School here in the Metro, and we topped 2,600 unique viewers for our last football game, which was a big rivalry game between Lakeville North and Lakeville South, and we got great viewership. It more than doubled our previous high for viewership of just over 1,100. So we're happy to see the platform that that I quit my job basically to make is going well. We also got some great publicity when the biggest newspaper in the Twin Cities, the Star Tribune, decided to do a feature story on high school streaming and featured our platform within the article. I was quoted in it, the AD was quoted in it, and while it certainly wasn't anything super hard-hitting, it still gets our website and our streaming platform in front of uh, one of the largest news audiences in the Twin Cities metro area. So we're, of course, happy to be a part of that. This is all happening within the same week that I plan on hitting the pavement with winter season sponsorships for hockey and basketball. And it'll be so much easier going into a sponsor in the winter than it was in the fall when I can say, hey, we got 2,600 unique viewers on our top game of the season. We're featured in the Star Tribune, the biggest news outlet in the state. This is probably something you want to get behind, as opposed to what I had to say earlier with, uh, this is what we think this might do. This is what we think about the team that we're covering, and we hope that you'll get great viewership and great return on your investment and that the product will be good. But it's all hypothetical. Nobody knows because it's the first time that We've done it, and really the first time that anybody in the Twin Cities Metro has tried something as all-encompassing with a local high school as what we're doing right now, at least as far as I'm aware of. But anyway, that's enough about me. Now to the important part of the show, this week's guest, who is a really good one. As you may not have noticed throughout 101 episodes, there have been an awful lot of Y chromosomes on the show. Part of that's because they're simply aren't that many women doing play-by-play jobs. But part of that is because I need to do a better job of bringing more diverse viewpoints on the podcast. So actually, the way that this guest came about was uh, a gentleman with the Twitter handle, Brett Butler is okay. I don't actually know him, but he's a fan of the show, and he suggested that I have Jill Guerin on the show. And I thought, hey, that seems like a great idea. If you don't know, Jill is the voice of the Visalia Rawhide in the California League, and she is one of six female broadcasters in minor league baseball last season. So without further ado, Jill Guerin, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Logan. Thanks for having me. So let's just start from the beginning. As in middle school, you wrote a note to, I don't know if it was a counselor or your parents or somebody that you wanted to be or that you were going to be the voice of the Red Sox, an ambitious goal for anyone. At what point did you know that that's what you wanted to do and that this business was your future? I think right around 12 or 13 years old, I was 
I went to a really small middle school. I'm talking there was 28 people in my graduating class. I went to a private school and, you know, the guys were talking sports and I kind of chimed in and they did the middle school thing. You're a girl. Why do you know about sports? All that kind of stuff. And I went and told my mom that and she said, you know a lot about sports and you talk a lot. Why don't you go into sports broadcasting? I'm sure she was joking, but 12-year-old Jill took that to heart and I started telling people I was going to be the play-by-play announcer for the Boston Red Sox and I actually said it in my eighth grade graduation speech. <laughs> and, grade and everyone grade. laughed, of course. Do you remember but... anything else from your eighth grade graduation speech? I don't, I thanked a lot of my teachers. I don't remember anything else. <laughs> so you are from Hermosa Beach, California, but you decided to go to college at Emerson, which is in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. How did you make that decision? So my dad is originally from Lawrence, Massachusetts. So I grew up going back east every summer visiting family. I have family in New Hampshire. And one summer around the college looking process, about 16 years old, we were at the Boston Tea Party Museum. And there were these girls, actresses, uh, talking about the tea and talking about you know, throwing it into the harbor. And at the end of it, we were talking to them and they said that they went to Emerson and they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I wanted to go into sports broadcasting. And one of the girls said, oh, Emerson has a great program. You should look into it. I did. I found that I could play softball there as well. And the rest was just history. Yeah, so I read that you also played softball and I, I tried to look up your statistics. I couldn't find them for your senior year. But it said you were the captain, and your junior year you had some pretty good batting averages. How did being an athlete in college influence your ability to to broadcast? Because I know that uh, as another former college athlete, going to practice sometimes cuts into the reps you can get at the student station. Oh, I – yeah, I don't have a lot of reps under my belt before this season. It was – it was tough because obviously wanted to go into baseball, but softball and baseball are in the same season. So you really don't have any reps. I think I only did one or two baseball games at school. I was able to do some basketball games and some volleyball games, but I didn't have a lot of experience with baseball from school. But I do think that playing softball really benefited me because these players I can relate to now. I understand what they're going through somewhat when it comes to the mental aspect of the game because it's really hard to understand the mental aspect of baseball. So I think it has been more beneficial than not, but there were definitely some challenges there. And from what I could tell, the internship program at Emerson may be the the most impressive thing about that school that I could see. You ended up with a internship with the Red Sox, if I read it correctly. How how competitive was that process? How did you come up with that? It was exclusive only to Emerson students because Tim Neverett, who was the play-by-play broadcaster of the time, graduated from Emerson. So he wanted, initially, it used to be Northeastern exclusive because Joe Castiglione, who was who's also now the play-by-play, he used to teach there. So he wanted it to be Northeastern exclusive. Now that he doesn't teach Northeastern anymore, Tim wanted it to become an Emerson exclusive internship. So that was huge. I think I beat out, there's maybe about 30 applicants. There were, I did an application process and then I had to go through two interviews and then the final interview with Tim just to make sure that he was happy with their selection. So I went through three rounds of interviews. What stood out about the interview process? Do you remember them being impressed by anything in particular? Because, again, you said at that time that you didn't have a lot of reps. Uh, What was your strength at that point? I had already been in clubhouses interviewing players. I interned with Channel 7 in Boston in the sports department, and I went to a few Red Sox games helping the Uh, camera guy gets some audio. So it's not that I was interviewing players, but I was in there getting audio. So I was used to being in clubhouses. I was already used to the environment. And I know how crazy scrum can be when you're in a clubhouse trying to get audio. And I know how to use my elbows to get people out of my way. So I think that was a huge part that it wouldn't be something new to me. I think that was probably the biggest thing that helped me. And then also just my knowledge of the game. Such an incredible opportunity is that is 
being in the Red Sox booth with, as you said, Joe Castiglione and Tim Neverett, what did you learn from that process? Oh, gosh. What didn't I learn? I mean, during games, if they said a phrase, I would write it down because I hadn't thought that I could use that phrase in a game before. I learned about interviewing managers and how it's important to have a manager report every day. And when the manager is talking to the media two or three hours before game time, make sure you listen to it. You don't have to be down there, but you can listen to it on your headphones to go through game notes, how to prepare for games ahead of time, how to create relationships with other people in the media and the players and scouts. I mean, just being able to be there and take all of that in was so important for me. And that was during the World Series year, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, like, how lucky am I? I can't even put into words how lucky I've been this past year and a half. Did you feel, obviously this takes a lot of very hard work, a lot of time and sweat equity. I know that when I was in college, maybe that wasn't uh, the most important thing. The most important thing to me was to go find the the next party or someone to share a pizza with. Uh, Right. Did you feel like you missed out on anything or you had to sacrifice at all in your college experience? Or were you just so laser focused that that's the experience you wanted? I think I was used to sacrificing things because of playing sports. You have to do that for practices and games. You can't be going out the night before. And I had my experiences in college where I was able to go out with friends and get to know a lot of people. But I think I knew how incredibly lucky I was for this experience and how rare it was that I didn't want to mess it up. So were professors and your faculty and your other communication students, because you were going into trying to do something that very few people have been able to successfully do. Did anybody ever try to talk you out of it? So it's interesting. Not my professors were all really happy for me. Uh, Everyone in the communications department was so happy for me, but there was actually someone who graduated from Emerson And she went into broadcasting or some sort of news form. And then she kind of told me, go into PR. You'll make more money that way. It's a lot easier of a, a lot easier of a job when it comes to time constraint is kind of what she was saying. And I think she told me that like two days after I got the internship. Um, So that was a little bit mind boggling to me, but I think that just kind of shows that, it takes a special person to want to go into this and to be able to keep doing it for a number of years because it does take a toll on you. I mean, I'm exhausted right now. (laughs) I have a theory that you have to be at least partially insane to want to do this. Right. I mean, I'm voluntarily working 16-hour days, and I love every second of it. (laughs) So take us through the schedule of a 16-hour day for a minor league broadcaster. We don't have a whole lot of minor league broadcasters on here. We've had some, but it's it's a different existence because the actual game is just a small portion of your responsibilities. Walk us through your average day. So in the beginning of the season, I probably showed up at about 7 a.m. I would come in, start printing out the stat packs, making copies of all those, make sure all the rosters were together. And then I have to help put together the scorecard inserts that we give out to fans or that rather we sell to fans. So I need to make sure we have a player of the homestand. I need to have my first page of game notes ready for them when they come in and then the lineup. So I'm in charge of printing all of those. Once the stat packs are done at about 9am, we have our day of game meeting going through all the important people who are going to be here, what sales are happening what concession stands are open, just literally anything and everything that's happening in the ballpark, we go over. And then after that, I'm finishing up my game notes usually. So I'm writing things about what they did the last homestand, what they did on the road, who's hot, who's not, who's new, who got promoted, um, any kind of weird streaks going on. And then I'll go into each and every player as well, both out of the bullpen and positional players. And then I'll do a one pager for, our starting pitcher. So that's kind of all the paperwork stuff. And then I'm delivering those to the managers in the clubhouse. 
I'm making sure the arm manager doesn't need any other statistics or anything else going on. And sometimes players will pull me aside asking for help for something. And I make sure that our clubhouse manager has an updated roster and his roster is different than the one that I'll normally print for other people because he'll just kind of get a list of everyone that's in the clubhouse, whether they're on the injured list or not. Um, player coach or just a coach, he gets a list of everyone because he has to be in charge of making the food for them. So that's kind of a majority of my paperwork stuff. But then I'm also taking sales at some point, making sales calls, trying to make sure we're getting enough group outings, I'm hitting my sales goals. And then I help with promotion. So we have, essentially, our marketing department is technically only two people. But when you talk about everyone who's helping with promotions, there's probably about five or six of us. And I'm kind of the person that will get the players to come and do something because the players are most used to seeing me in the front on the front office. So I have to grab them to do any promotions that we need to do interviews that I need. And then BP, <laughs> that all happens before about three o'clock. And then BP will usually be around four or five, depending on what time the game is and what the visiting team is doing. And I go down and watch BP. So I want to have all my stuff down ahead of time because that's the part that I love is just being around baseball and talking to the players and picking their brains. Um, and then after BP is when I kind of start getting all my notes together, get my scorebook ready, make a few social media posts about the lineup and what to expect for today. And then the game happens. You know, I do a three, three and a half hour game. And then after that, I have to get the box scores printed from our official scorekeeper, bring them into the clubhouse, see if there's any questions about the scoring, any changes that we need to have discussed. And then after that, I write our post-game recap and I'll post it online and send it to any media personnel. Um, and I should have mentioned I also am the person that media contacts, if they want to interview with a player, they want pictures of anything, they'll contact me. So I'm also running around helping with that if needed. And then you and sleep really well. I pass out, one hundred percent. Just pass out, and yeah. You mentioned promotions. I, I'm interested. Have you had any crazy promotions? We have um, a wiener club. That's a lot of fun. For twenty five dollars, you get a wiener club shirt and a card for Nathan's hot dogs, which is what we sell at the ballpark. And you get, I think it's six hot dogs that you can enjoy at once or throughout the game. So, I mean, that was fun in the beginning of the season. We had our on-field guy wearing a hot dog suit saying, ask me about my wiener club. So that was fun. Um, we have a dental night coming up where our, we have a lot of different promotional jerseys. I mean, we had a, oh, this one's good. We had a dairy shirt. So it was a cow shirt in the front. It was a cow face. And in the back of the tail, it was cow print all over because in Visalia, we're a big agricultural community and dairy is one of our biggest ag products. And we actually had a cow milking contest between our players and the Modesto nuts players. So there was a cow on the field and our country boys just tried to milk it as fast as they could. And the, our, our boys won. So well, that's, that's what's important is that you yep. make sure you win the cow milking contest. I wanted to dig into a little bit. You were able to, before you got your job with Visalia, you were able to call games in a collegiate wood bat league with the Nashua Silver Knights. I'm assuming that was your first real play-by-play experience from what we've talked about before, at least on the baseball side of things. How important was that in your development and being able to land the Visalia position? I mean, it was huge because I was able to have a professional reel at age 22. Uh, I actually got that gig through Tim Neverett with the Red Sox because his brother was the manager of the Nashua Silver Knights. And he said, you know, you're going to have to, you're not going to get paid. You're going to have to find your way to New Hampshire on days off. But I think it'd be a really good opportunity for you because you can record it, which I the radio station that it was through didn't record. I had to bring my own recorder and do it that way. And I was able to use interviews from players. So it was just a really good way for me to get a professional reel going and also to kind of sit back and say, okay, I can do this. It's going to be really bad in the beginning. 
and it's going to be really rusty and I'm going to have a long way to go, but I can physically do this. And it also was important for me because I started to be around new ball players that I hadn't met before. When you're doing stuff in college and you play softball there, you know all the athletes already. They're comfortable around you. It was important for me to get used to being around new ball players who have to get used to me as well during interviews. So that was good to experience. But yeah, it was important that for my reel and also being able to interview Jackie Bradley Jr. on a one-on-one interview because of the Red Sox internship, I think is what really made my reel. So tell us your stories of poverty from doing from wood bat wood. league uh, baseball in, at that level. You mentioned that you barely, if at all, get paid. It's something kind of a rite of passage that a lot of baseball broadcasters go through. Do you have any fun stories? Um, so I worked in three different states last summer. Um, it was with the Red Sox. And then I also had a side job at Boston College working in their concession stands. I did some stuff with the Pawtucket Red Sox, which is in Rhode Island, and then the Nashville Silver Knights in New Hampshire. And I also was an assistant coach at Emerson College. Once I graduated, I became an assistant coach there just for a semester. So I had, what is that, five jobs? And in three different states. So I was taking a train from Boston to Rhode Island uh, and then back to Boston. Sometimes I would miss the last train because the game went late and I'd have to text a friend who lived in Rhode Island to come pick me up and I'd crash there. I took a bus to New Hampshire where I had family members. So I was able to stay there, but I had to borrow my aunt's car to drive there and back. But the one positive thing about that was I was there for the birth of my cousin's first son, because she was living at my aunt's house as well at the time. And she started to give birth while I was there one night, right after the game had ended. So that was that was a cool experience, at least. But it having to be in three different states for three different jobs, and you don't get paid much for any one of them is a lot to deal with. That had to be a heck of a tax return to fill out. Oh my gosh. It, thank God for my dad for helping me with that. <laughs> so the the reason we're having you on here is because you are the first female broadcaster in the 73-year history of the Vesalia Rawhide. And, you know, just walk us through the connections and how you ended up landing that position. Right. So our general manager, Jen, is a woman. And I think she wanted a woman broadcaster. I think in the back of her mind, she liked the idea of it. Because at the time when I was hired, I was actually only the third woman hired in minors. So I I think, not that she was looking for it, but she was hoping for it. Uh, Julian Rifkin, he's in charge of baseball operations here. And he was a senior on the baseball team at Emerson when I was a freshman on the softball team. I got some notifications through... um, STAA talent that they kind of just send out a long email of all the different teams that are possibly looking for broadcasters. And I saw Rawhide and I knew Julian worked there. So I reached out to him, said, do you think that this could work out? It'd be a good fit. And he said, yeah, let me put you in touch with my GM. She called me the next day. We did two over the phone interviews and she offered me the job before my time with the Red Sox was even over. And I read that they were considering just dumping play-by-play unless they found the right candidate. You obviously were the right candidate. Is it crazy to look back and say, what if they had just decided not to have somebody? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'd be doing if, <laughs> if that had happened. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, this whole year and a half has just been surreal for me. I mean, I was... Before last summer, I was a, you know, a junior in college, trying thinking about not doing play-by-play anymore because of how difficult it was, and then everything just started to fall right for me. One of my mentors, Charles Steinberg, I was talking to him about it. He's the president of the Paw Sox, and he told me, "Don't give up on a dream that you haven't even tried for yet." And then the Red Sox internship happened. The Nashville Silver Knights happened then this opportunity is here. And sometimes I take a step back and I realize just how crazy it's been. And I just can't get over how lucky I've been to be able to deal with this and have all this happen to me. Can you go a little deeper? What 
did you why were you considering giving it up that's i mean it's a common thought to have i think we all have it at some point but what specifically happened at that point that had you maybe doubting yourself i didn't have any experience doing it and it was difficult for me to do that and i didn't want to stop playing softball so the only alternative in my mind was well we'll just go into pr or marketing which is still something that i do enjoy being a part of, but broadcasting is where my passion is. Um, I think it was just fear. I was afraid of failing and afraid of not being good enough. And I think that's still a huge fear for me, but I'm more so just, I know that I'm not that good yet. Uh, It's my first professional season. So I know that I have a lot to deal with. And I think just being able to be confident enough to handle that is important, but at that point, I was just thinking, I'll just go into PR and marketing. There's more jobs available. I don't have any experience. And again, Charles really told me, no, you need to keep going. And he gave me a lot of opportunities to do mock broadcasts in Pawtucket to just get some reps under my belt. And I'll, I'll forever be grateful to him for that. I know that I don't think it was your direct predecessor. A couple predecessors ago at Visalia, Donnie Barnes wrote a book about the history of the Visalia Rawhide. That has to be a great resource to uh, when you get the job and you have to learn about the the team and that there's literally a book about a high A baseball team. I'm assuming that's not real common. Did you read it? Oh, yes. I've read it. I have gone through it multiple times when we needed pictures. I think it was on Jackie Robinson Day that the Visalia cubs at the time had the first african-american player in the cal league so i flipped through that book trying to find photos of them i used it just having to go back we're having our throwback series coming up this month and i needed to double check what year the Oaks started what year they ended things like that just things that in reality i probably should be able to rattle off the top of my brain which i'm sure donnie barnes is able to do but it's very nice to have a resource to go back to whenever you need to double check yourself. So one of the things that I always struggle with in conversations like this is, and I'm curious on your opinion on it because being the third female uh, play-by-play broadcaster in minor league baseball in a lot of ways is a huge deal, but at the same time, maybe it shouldn't be a big deal because It should just be another broadcaster, but how do you balance the trailblazing aspect of what you're doing right now with normalizing it for future generations by not maybe making a huge deal about it? That was not very eloquently said, but I hope you understand (laughs) the question. Yes. Um, It's funny. I hate the word trailblazer. I don't know why. I know I am. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm just a 23-year-old broadcaster trying to make it. And I'm going through all these difficulties that everyone else has to go through. But I am very, very aware that I have extra challenges, we'll call them, that I have to deal with being a woman. Because I do go into the clubhouses. And I think it's tough because there isn't anyone that I can go to to say, hey, how do you handle this? I mean, I am... Uh, I follow all the other women broadcasters on Twitter and all the other social media platforms and we'll talk things out and I'll ask them their opinions. But I, there isn't anyone that I can go to in the Cal League that I can say, what do you think I should do here? What should the rules be here? I'm just kind of making them up as I go. Um, so yeah, it is a big deal. And I think it's more so a big deal, not that I'm the first one, but it's why the heck is it 2019 and I'm the first woman broadcaster? I think that should be what the big deal is. What issues have you had with uh, locker room access or maybe not being taken seriously at certain points? Have have you run into stuff like that? Yeah. Our, first of all, our players have been amazing. I have nothing negative to say about them. Our manager, Sean Roof, has been awesome. Shane Luke's our pitching coach. I've gone to him for advice on things like this. Um, and our, our players know that when they make it to – the bigs, there's going to be women in the clubhouse and not just walking through, but you stand in the clubhouse for a full hour waiting for a player to come and be available to talk to. So you have to get used to that. And I think I'm 
helping the players get used to that. And in the Diamondbacks organization, there is a female athletic trainer in the low A team. So I think they're also used to a woman being there. But for these other teams, they're not used to it. So I didn't really know how to handle it. I, To be honest, it's probably my fault. I didn't give them a heads up that a woman's going to be walking into the clubhouse because I was so used to it from working with the Red Sox. It was normal to me. In my mind, I'm thinking there's no reason for me to announce myself because this is what I should be able to do. But I would walk in. Some guys would be very shocked. Sometimes they'd say, you know, an explicitive or something. Um, I would just kind of bob my way through the clubhouse because the clubhouses are so small. I can't just go straight to the manager's office. I have to kind of climb over bags. I have to kind of tap some guys on the shoulders and say, excuse me, I'm trying to get through something like that. So I think it's mainly shock that I've had to deal with, but I've had a few people say stuff to me. Um, I've had someone ask me if I was enjoying the show. Um, this last homestand, I was in the clubhouse before the game, handing the manager some rosters. And on my way out, I heard someone say, since when were we letting women into locker rooms? Um, I've had a guy dry off in the middle of the clubhouse much longer than he needed to. And as I walked by, people laughed. Um, I've had a clubhouse manager not specifically tell me that women aren't allowed in the clubhouses, but he's said multiple times to me, oh, after the game, I can just take the box scores for you and I'll hand them to the manager. That way we can avoid the mess of you coming into the clubhouse. And I just didn't like the word, the way he used the word mess. I thought he could have used a better word for that. Um, and it's also, according to Cal League rules, I have to hand the box scores to the manager. I can't hand them to someone else. It's specifically my job to do that. And if they're trying to make sure players feel more comfortable, okay, we can figure out a way where I can go the back route where I go through our clubhouse and through a back door that I can go into the manager's office or we can create a time where we say, okay, players, if you're uncomfortable, make sure you have some boxers on or something. Um, I think there's just better ways to go around it. it. It's just people need to get used to it and they're not yet. What is your reaction when that happens? What do you say to people when they're being jerks and doing things that they should not be doing? Do you just kind of ignore it? Do you try to, you know, snap at them? Do you try to just be polite and move on? I mean, there's so many ways you could go. I don't know what the right thing to do is. What do you do? I don't know what it is, what the right thing to do is either. I just ignore it. A lot of times when they have said something to me, it's right when I'm opening the door to leave. And I think it's too aggressive and almost excessive to turn around and snap at them. Um, I usually text my friends or my mom and, you know, like curse them out via text message to them. <laughs> um, but I usually ignore it. If a player ever directly comes up to me and says something to my face, because a lot of this has kind of been behind my back as I'm leaving, then I'll probably address it with them. Um, with players who have contacted me via Instagram, um, not in a professional manner, but because they think I'm pretty, I will have a conversation with them in person and say, you know, you are my coworkers and I'm not interested like that, but I hope we can still have a professional working relationship. I have had to do that with a player. You know, I wanted to talk about social media and there's really no better transition than to go from <laughs> that. And I'd, I'd never thought of that aspect of it, but do you get nasty social media comments just from fans or people who, uh, for whatever reason, don't like the fact that their broadcaster is a woman? I haven't had anything from our fans. I have had one fan tell me in person that he was skeptical about a woman being a broadcaster, but after listening to a few games, he really enjoyed it, he said, which which is really what I love about the position I'm in, is I want people to be educated that women are good broadcasters, just like how some men aren't good broadcasters. There will be some women who aren't, but there's also both women and men who are good broadcasters. Um, and going off that, there was, when I was announced, some people commented on other people's 
posts about me, you know, media outlets talking about me being a broadcaster and they would comment saying women make lousy broadcasters, which is literally the same thing as let's say someone doesn't like Beth Moens or they don't like Jessica Mendoza. And then they group all women together that they're lousy broadcasters. That's just the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. That's like me saying, I don't like Tim Neverett as a broadcaster. All men must be terrible broadcasters. If you put it, it just, people don't make sense. <laughs> it, it, it amazes me how small-minded some people are. Have you been able to get in touch with broadcasters like Beth Moens or Jessica Mendoza? Anyone who says they're not good are just objectively wrong. But have you been able to get in touch and kind of pick their brains about finding their way down this path? Yeah, so Jessica Mendoza and... um Susan Waldman with the Yankees. I met both of them through the Red Sox internship. Tim Neverett was really good about introducing me to people and especially women that came through so I could be able to connect with them. Um, Beth Moens actually just followed me on Twitter yesterday and I literally ran through the office screaming about it. <laughs> I was so excited because I've listened to her broadcast softball and she followed me back on Twitter and it was it was awesome to have that happen. I haven't reached out to her yet to pick her brain, but being able to talk to Jessica and Susan have been awesome. I have Susan's number where I can call her if I ever need anything. Um, I have Jess's email. So it's just really nice to have those kind of people to reach out to. Breaking through to the next level is something that, that no woman has really been able to do yet. You mentioned that there's <laughs> six female broadcasters in the minor league system right now. None of them are higher than high A. What is it going to take to continue to push that glass ceiling up higher and break it at different levels? It's hard because we need people to be open to it. And it's ridiculous that I even have to say I need someone to be open to hiring a woman. It's why wouldn't they be? It brings a new perspective. It's something different. And to be honest, it's a good marketing move because look at what's happening with the Salem Red Sox. They have so much publicity right now because of um, Susie Cool and Melanie Newman because they have a two-woman booth. It's honestly a smart business move at a certain point. But, you know, we don't want to be publicity stunts either. Um, it's honestly just going to take someone being okay with it. And obviously, we need to be good enough. I know I'm not good enough to move on to the next level yet. Um, but it takes us just kind of keep pushing and to make it normal. We need to normalize women being in sports and being play-by-play broadcasters. And I think we need to have more women coming in behind us as well, kind of pushing us out of this position and into double A, triple A and the majors. What do you say to someone that says you're just hired as a publicity stunt? I certainly don't believe that. I listen to your reel. It's quite good. Uh, what do you say to somebody who says that to you? I laugh because sometimes I'll agree with them. <laughs> Just from a standpoint of I know that Jen was really excited to have a woman broadcaster and she might not have hired someone if I wasn't a woman. She might not have wanted to do it. But I'll tell them, you know, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But I'm going to work my butt off to prove to you that I'm more than just a publicity stunt. I read that you had an interesting reaction right before your first broadcast. Tell us oh what God. happened. I puked. <laughs> I puked. I was so nervous. It's I'm I'm definitely one of those people. I've done that before. Um, playoff games when I played in softball before. Um, that's just kind of what I'll do sometimes. But I mean, my first game was just so bad. <laughs> it was a lot going on. I was getting to know these players. It was a new situation. Um, it was not a good broadcast. It was just terrible. I have deleted it. I do not ever want to listen to it again. Um, but yeah, I was nervous. I was nervous for myself. I'm, I'm a confident person, but I also know that I need a lot of work and that makes me anxious. Um, and also, to be quite honest with you, being a woman, I feel I do feel a lot more pressure. And it's difficult and hard for me to admit that because let's say someone does say she's not good or someone doesn't like my reel. 
someone who's small-minded might not give another woman a chance. And I have put a lot of pressure on myself about that. I know I need to work on that, but I do feel like I need to be better for the other young girls wanting to come up into this business. So what was going through your head after you got done puking and you finally were able to turn on that mic and be on the air for the rawhide for the first time? I imagine that had to be a heck of a good feeling. Describe what it was like. It was a whirlwind. I think I was just trying to make sure I was speaking English. (laughs) Um, After it's interesting. I didn't have that feel good moment until after my second game. Cause the first game I just needed to get it in and out of the way. And so Shane Luke's the pitching coach. I spoke to him on day two before the game and he asked me how everything went. And he said, you know, the coaches actually listen to the broadcast after every game to go through the plays. And I immediately looked to him and I said, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I know I wasn't good. I know just rambling off. And then he said, can I tell you a secret? And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, I didn't actually listen to the broadcast. I just wanted to hear what you thought about yourself. And so that really put something into perspective for me that, you know, there's going to be bad games. And just like as a player, you need to kind of shake it off. But I didn't have my first feel good moment of you're a professional broadcaster. And this has been what you've been dreaming of for 10 years until after the second game when I finally felt more comfortable. Do you have a home run call? I like describing the home runs. I'm not a big fan of just saying, you know, whatever. I try to describe it because there's such a difference between a just clearing the wall and a moonshot. Um, I'll usually describe if it's near the foul line. I think I tend to say a lot. If it's fair, it's gone. Um, I'll say it's hooking. There's been one Camden Duzneck. He has the most home runs on our team. And whenever he, he, his home runs always go well over the fence. And I usually describe his as a moonshot. So I think his specific home run has a home run call, but nobody else has a specific one. So with play-by-play, obviously the voice as an instrument is a huge aspect of any play-by-play call. And that's, to me, really the only difference between a male and a female broadcaster is that you know, a male with a deep voice sometimes has a hard time keeping their voice in control in really big moments where they go crazy. Is it more difficult with a higher pitch voice? How do you handle that aspect of the broadcast? I honestly never think about my voice during a broadcast. Um, I don't think I have a very particularly high pitched voice. Um, I know it's more high pitched than a male's voice though. Um, it's honestly more so I get sick a lot. I get colds a lot. It's always, I've always been like that. And so my broadcast, at least once a month, I have a cold. So that's been something that I've had to deal with actually more than the inflection in my voice. Um, yeah, I don't think I've really had to deal with my voice cracking at any point like that. It's been more so coughing. <laughs> How have you learned to for lack of a better word, stay healthy and fight around that coughing. Whenever I start to feel something, I'll try to get a little bit more sleep. Um, I mean, I don't have the world's healthiest diet right now. I'm eating ballpark food. Um, (laughs) Yesterday, I'm pretty sure I ordered McDonald's. Um, Just not, I'm not eating healthy. I'm not taking care of my body. I haven't worked out since opening day. So that's something I'll need to get better into. But I try to sleep more and I mean, the mute button is just my best friend when it comes to coughing at this point. (laughs) So take us through your preparation process. I know we talked kind of about your daily uh, walkthrough, but what do you do to prepare uh, to get stories and notes and all of the stuff that you need to get through a a three-and-a-half-hour broadcast? I just try to be around the players as much as possible. I also make a point to meet their families if they're in town and their girlfriends or wives because they have some of the best stories. I'm friendly with a lot of their girlfriends. Um, For example, Alex King, he is one of the, he's our third baseman. He also plays first base, but he's pitched for us a few times and they just needed someone to throw. And he hadn't pitched since high school, but I couldn't remember if he had pitched since college or high school. So I just texted his girlfriend who I knew was listening to the game. And she gave me some information. So that's really 
important for me to get close to the players and close to their families as well. Um, and that helps the players trust me more and I can get interesting stories about them. Um, I'm friendly with their host families. We put players up with families in Visalia. So I'll get some funny stories about them that way. But just really being around batting practice, not even interviewing players, but just being there listening to our hitting coach, Travis Denker, talk about the mental aspects of the game, talking about what they feel on certain pitches, what he wants them to deal with. And also being there because Denker knows what the starting pitcher is throwing and that's what they're incorporating in their BP aspect. I'll listen to that so that I get a little bit more knowledge about their pitcher. And then, of course, the Internet's a godsend because you just Google everything and anything about these players. And I get a lot of information from the visiting broadcasters as well, whether what some guys have been struggling with, what their pitch arsenal is, things like that. But I think one thing that I pride myself in is my working relationship with the players and their families. Have you gotten any pushback from any other media members? No, not at all. The uh, other broadcasters have been amazing. I've had them be very helpful and they've, some of them have kind of, I'm the youngest one also in the Cal league. And some of them kind of have thought of me as like a niece or something like that, or maybe even a daughter where they say, if anything happens, we want you to come tell us and we'll handle it type of thing. Um, They've been awesome. And as far as the other media members in the surrounding areas of the central Valley, I mean, I think every media outlet at this point has done a story on me. So I have a good working relationship with them as well. It's I have gotten a lot of support from people and I'm so thankful for it. It's really just these players who aren't used to women walking into clubhouses that have given me a little bit of pushback. One of the stories that I just loved reading, or I don't know if there was an entire story, but one of the aspects of one of the stories, it said you had a a fourth grade girl who was interested in getting into sports broadcasting shadow you for a day. Tell me what that was like. Obviously you don't like the, the term trailblazer, but to, to have somebody have the role model that you didn't have, how, how did that feel? That was awesome. That's some, I love mentoring people. That's something I've always done just from also being a captain of the softball team you always are kind of the person that someone will go to if they need help with something and I love that I can help with that so this girl she is the daughter of someone who works in the front office and he showed her some articles about me and she's really interested in women in history and lack for a better word the trailblazers of women in history things like that and she showed me her book of all these awesome women I mean people like Harriet Tubman, um, you know, Cleopatra, everyone and anything in between there of these amazing, strong women. And I told her, if you ever want to hang out, you want to go into the booth, just let me know. And she came and sat with me and she's actually really interested in scoring my book. And I feel bad for her dad because I definitely just convinced her to be a broadcaster and she used to want to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that was that part was really cool to me. I really want women and young girls to see that they can do this. It's at a point where I truly believe the reason why we don't have a lot of women broadcasters is because they didn't grow up seeing these other women in the booth. They saw them doing sideline reporting, which is still a very difficult career, very hard to get those jobs as well. But I want women to know that they have all these other opportunities as well. So I really am happy that she was able to shadow me. And I'm happy that some media outlets are covering this because I want people to see that it is possible. Do you have a book that if an average person who knows how to read a scorebook, can they read it? Or do you have a unique style? Do you do things in your own way? I think I definitely do things in my own way because I learned scoring that was how I got into baseball. My dad and I would go to a baseball game and we would keep score together. And so that kept me involved in the game in understanding some of the strategies. And also I learned terminology at an early age too. But then I started to use it for keeping score during softball. And for that, you want to know everything from where the ball was hit. If it was an outside pitch, what the count was, 
And then I needed to transition that into coaching, which was even more detailed aspects. And then that had to transition into broadcasting, where now it's more so I'll describe not just F8, but I'll say soft F8. Or if it's a base hit, I'll describe it as a line drive or a ground ball up the middle. I have a lot of little notes doing that. And now I have arrows showing if they went from first to third on a base hit, I'll do an arrow to third showing that just so that way, let's say, for example, my computer was overheating yesterday in the booth because it was really hot here. And I wasn't going to be able to look at the box scores or the plays on my computer because I broadcast through my computer and I didn't want it to be using any other power other than just transmitting the broadcast. So I needed to have a perfect book to be able to go back and look at after the game. We are recording this on July 29th. It's probably not going to be released until late fall. I would guess October. I haven't done the math yet, but this is the time of year. I tried to do a whole bunch of these, so when things get crazy in the fall, I can take a week and not do one. But I say that because you're still in the middle of your first season, so you haven't had a ton of of chances for things to go horribly wrong. But it's minor league baseball, and uh, you did collegiate wood bat league baseball, so I imagine you have stumbled at least one or two of what I like to call broadcast horror stories, where um, something with the equipment or location or just really weird circumstances for a broadcast or a road trip or whatever goes horribly wrong to a point where you're mortified at the moment, but you can laugh about it now. What would your story be? So it it also shows just my inexperience with this. I have a normal soundboard that I use my mixer and I pressed one button by accident that essentially prevented the USB cord from connecting to my computer. So when I was trying to get it up into, I use um, LaudioCast to get it through online and when I was looking at that, it wasn't showing up. It wasn't allowing me to use my USB cord to the um, mixer. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to have a broadcast. I ran to Guitar Center. Is that what it's called? Guitar Center? Sure. The, yeah, sure. We'll go with that. Guitar Center. I went to Best Buy. I went to all these places, bought all these different cords, trying to figure out, and it was not working. So I said, okay, forget the mixer. We're going to figure out how I could just do it completely through my computer. I had to plug in a microphone. So I didn't have a crowd mic. It was just a solo mic that I was holding. And in order to play my ads, because I have to play my ads due to contracts that we have, I had to unplug my microphone and just play the ads (laughs) out of my computer. So that way the built-in microphone in my computer would just pick it up. And so everyone in the booth, I told before the game, I was like, there is no talking in between innings. We do not do that. But of course, the visiting broadcaster had to come in and ask us a few questions because there was a weird scoring play. And I mean, it was funny because I was able to play off that. And I said, as you probably heard during the commercials, Jason came in and spoke spoke to us about this. But here is the official ruling. So, I mean, it's something I can laugh about now. But the worst part of it is the next day I was still trying to figure out And in my mind, I'm like, I need to buy a new computer. I need to get a new mixer. I was on the phone with Apple, on the phone with tech support, everyone. And then at one point, I was looking at the photo that Vinny Longo, who is my predecessor, about what things were pushed. And I was just looking and I pushed that button again. And then all of a sudden, it started working. So I literally just disconnected the ability for my computer and mixer to work together. And that's why I had one hell of a game (laughs) do you have uh are you the sole engineer of the broadcast do you have anybody there you could ask technical questions to no our pa announcer brian anthony he um works in radio in fresno as well so he he tried to help me out and he's like okay and it was was really funny because we tried to make it work through his soundboard and apparently he had that same button pressed So it wasn't working through my computer on that mixer either. And he was like, oh, it's got to be your computer then, which a computer is not cheap. (laughs) I need a new computer. I was about, this is before Easter. So I was literally booking appointments to go down to Bakersfield 
on Easter because that's the closest Apple store to buy a new computer. And it was just crazy. <laughs> Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you're trying to, you know, figure out new words to use or just want to enjoy a game on an off day? It's tough to answer that because I'm so biased because I'm a Red Sox fan. I love, and I worked for him. I love listening to Joe Castiglione just because his ability to remember these random games in history, I admire that because I'm not good at that. Um, I was a huge fan of Don Arcello growing up. I listened to him and Remy every day after school or in the summer as well. So those are the ones that I love to feel nostalgic with. Um, but I'll actually listen to a lot of other minor league games because I can not only improve from listening to them, but I'll also be able to kind of see, oh, that sounded a little bit weird. What if we did it this way? So it's kind of I prefer listening to the not perfect broadcasts because I can figure I can critique them by helping myself, if that makes sense. It does. How often do you listen back to your own tape to to give yourself self-critiques? Occasionally, I have been giving some sounds to Mike Farron with the Diamondbacks. He does a every Friday kind of a um, prospects show about the prospects that are in the minors. So I'll send him sounds from my reel, whatever he wants, a highlight of Justin Lewis, Matt Mercer, someone like that. So because I have to send them that, I have to take time to listen back to my tape. And I really should be doing it more. I should already be recutting a new reel. But I'm just trying to get through this season. If we're being honest, I'm just trying to stay afloat. <laughs> you said you were a huge Red Sox fan. Let's just pretend 10 years down the road, you get offered the Yankees job. Could you take it? Yes. <laughs> not a hard, not really a hard uh, hypothetical, no, I suppose. Not hard at all because, I mean, I know that I need to be open to any job. If you ask, if you asked me when I was fourteen, I would say no. I would be a hard no. But no, I've had that same question asked because one of my closest friends is a Yankees fan, and he jokes with me. He said, "If you become the Yankees broadcaster, I'll listen to you then." And I'm just like, Matt, I'll do it if I get the job offer. So it's definitely, I know that I cannot be picked. In your biggest learning moment in your first year covering minor league baseball this season, besides learning what button to unpush. <laughs> oh gosh. It's hard because I do so many different things. I, I've learned a lot about minor league baseball and the transactions part, part of it. I never really knew that. So sometimes I'll know ahead of time if a player is moving or not, sometimes the manager will know before me. And sometimes I have no idea who else knows if a player is being moved up or down. I don't know who else knows that. So just having to learn how to sit back and take in everything and kind of figure out who knows what and being able to make my own conclusions that way has been really important for me because there was one time where I received information that a pitcher was coming to us and he was going to be used as a starter which I needed to know the new starting rotation then. So I texted our pitching coach and Shane said, oh, he wasn't going to be a starter. So I needed to go back, check my sources. And then he was needed to double check that he was correct too. And it just created this whole new thing. So I've learned not to speak unless spoken to when it comes to transactions. <laughs> what about learning how to write the media packets and the press releases? Is that something that's come easy or something that you had to develop? Something I had to develop, I think it was good that I could see professional ones with the Red Sox, but I definitely need to figure out, for example, our, we lost, we've only lost 13 games at home this season, and it didn't even occur in my brain that I should probably have a little paragraph about how good we are at home. It's just little things like that that come so naturally to other people. I need to still learn that. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do so be? Um, you can email me at Jillian at rawhidebaseball.com. We have two Jills in this office, so that's why my email is Jillian. It's J-I-L-L-I-A-N. Does that get confusing around the clubhouse? Oh, my gosh. Not around the clubhouse because no one 
else really knows Jill. It gets more so confusing in the office. So everyone has to call me JG for Jill Guerin, and she's Jill. All right. Once again, we are visiting with JG, Jill Guerin, the voice of the Visalia Rawhide. And Jill, thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Logan. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. That's at radio underscore Logan on Twitter, facebook.com slash saythedamnscore on Facebook, or at saythedamnscore on Instagram. Feedback is also always appreciated, whether that's in the form of a Apple podcast review or just an email. I'm always happy to hear it. It makes the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the pod. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.